You can turn to Revelation chapter 4. My name is Blake Jennings. I'm one of the teaching pastors here at Grace, if I haven't had a chance to meet you before. Let me say Merry Christmas. You probably don't need me to say that because you know it's five days away. So uh, I hope you've done your shopping. I, I have not finished mine. I never have by this point in time. Usually about this time of year is when I'm feeling a lot like Charlie Brown. Maybe you can identify with this. I think there must be something wrong with me, Linus. Christmas is coming, but I'm not happy. I don't feel the way I'm supposed to feel. I just don't understand Christmas, I guess. I like getting presents and sending Christmas cards and decorating trees and all that, but I'm still not happy. I always end up feeling depressed. Charlie Brown, you're the only person I know who can take a wonderful season like Christmas and turn it into a problem. Maybe Lucy's right. Of all the Charlie Browns in the world, you're the Charlie Browniest. I know how Charlie feels. I felt that way at Christmas ever since I became an adult. Because it's not like Santa comes for adults like us, just kids on his list. I'm a working parent. So for me, Christmas means stress and responsibilities and bills to pay and a lot of work. Now, when I was a kid, by this point in the year, five days till Christmas, I was just giddy with excitement. That's how I felt. I couldn't sleep at night. I was so excited because Christmas was just the best But now as an adult, by this time in the year, I feel exhausted. I just feel overwhelmed with all the stuff that we have to do. And usually by this time of year, I'm feeling a little bit blue, a little bit sad about what Christmas has become. And some of you have it worse than me. For you, Christmas dredges up feelings of of loss, memories of grief and, and pain and suffering. And so this time of year is difficult for you. So the question that I want us to ask this morning is what do we do when we're feeling blue at Christmas? What do we do with those feelings of stress and depression, discouragement, grief, loss? Where do we take all of those negative emotions during Christmas? Well, you're going to take into the book of Revelation. Revelation chapter 4, I know that sounds weird. I'm guessing that none of you have read Revelation to your children on the night before Christmas because we don't do that. But I would actually say you should because Revelation 4 and 5 are a great Christmas passage. Let me prove that to you. I'm going to walk you through Revelation 4 and 5. We begin in Revelation 4 with the setting in heaven. And so look with me. Let's start in verse 2. This is John the Apostle speaking. Immediately I was in the spirit and behold, a throne was standing in heaven and one sitting on the throne. And he who was sitting was like a jasper stone and a sardius in appearance. And there was a rainbow around the throne like an emerald in appearance. Around the throne were 24 thrones and upon the thrones I saw 24 elders sitting clothed in white garments and golden crowns on their heads. And out from the throne come flashes of lightning and sounds and peals of thunder. And there were seven 
lamps of fire burning before the throne, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne, there was something like a sea of glass, like crystal. And in the center and around the throne, four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. The first creature was like a lion and the second creature like a calf or an ox. And the third creature had a face like that of a man. And the fourth creature was like a flying eagle. And the four living creatures, each one of them having six wings are full of eyes around and within and day and night they do not cease to say holy 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 is the Lord God the almighty who was and who is and who is to come and when the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who sits on the throne to him who lives forever and ever the 24 elders fall down before him who sits on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever and cast their crowns before the throne saying worthy are you our Lord and our God to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and because of your will they existed and were created and so John describes heaven and the focal point of heaven the center of heaven is a throne and everything in heaven is described in relation to that throne so first we read about what is on the throne that's God the Father. He is on the throne in all of his glory. John describes him as as looking like all of these costly gemstones in the ancient world. He lists a number of gems that were very expensive in the ancient world. They were they were uh, hoarded. They they were pursued because of their clarity and and their brightness. There weren't lights in the ancient world, so they really stood out. Now that's a common way to describe the appearance of God the Father in the Bible. He is majestic or gloriously bright in appearance. And so if you look at the book of Ezekiel, God the Father is described as glowing metal. It is molten hot and on fire. In the book of Daniel, God the Father is is said to be white as new fallen snow, sitting on a throne that is ringed in fire. In 1 Timothy, we're told that God the Father dwells in unapproachable light. That means that he is so incredibly bright, you can't look at him. It's like looking at the sun at noonday would blind you. And so at the center of heaven on a great throne is God the Father in his unveiled majesty. And then second, you have that which is before the throne or in front of the throne, that which is closest to the throne. Two things. First of all, the seven lampstands of God, the the seven spirits of God, or better translated, the sevenfold spirit of God. That's kind of a metaphorical way of describing the Holy Spirit. And when it says sevenfold, that in the Bible is how you say the spirit is almighty. Seven is the number of perfection and power. And so it's describing how the spirit of God before the throne is invincible. And then in front of the Holy Spirit is something like a glass sea made of crystal. We don't know what it is, but we can picture really easily what it does. It's like those little glass crystals that people will hang in their windows that capture the sunlight and refract it into rainbows all over the house. That's what this is. It captures the glory, the brightness of God and refracts it. It reflects it all throughout heaven, all throughout the universe. 
verse. So that's what's before the throne of God. Then we're told what's around the throne. There are two concentric circles of creatures, of created beings. The first, the closest circle are these four crazy looking creatures. And these four angelic creatures, they remind us of what we would read in the book of Isaiah in chapter six. Isaiah is in the throne room. He says, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple and seraphim stood above him each having six wings and with two he covered his face with two he covered his feet with two he flew and one called out to another and said holy 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 is the lord of hosts the whole earth is full of his glory and the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke So if you were in heaven looking towards God the Father, you couldn't look right at him. He's too bright for that. He's too overwhelming. But you could see around him these four angelic beings called seraphim. They're the most powerful of angelic creatures in the Bible. They're covered with wings and with eyes. The eyes is a metaphor for guarding the holiness of God. They're constantly guarding God's presence. And they're described as these four kinds of creatures, lion and and a man and an ox and an eagle. Those are the noblest, most powerful creatures on earth. The idea is that you have the most powerful angelic beings and all they do all the time is hover around the throne of God. And then outside of that circle, you have a larger circle with 24 thrones and sitting on those thrones are 24 elders and we don't know who or what they are. We just know they're kings because they have crowns. So they're great kings over the universe or over the earth. And, and they stand around the throne of God. And these four angelic beings and 24 kings, all they do day and night unceasingly is to worship God the Father. Without end. That's what they're doing all the time. The four beings, these four seraphim are calling out the attributes of God. They are shouting out that God is holy, holy, holy. That means he's distinct from all that is created. He's distinct from all that is sinful. And he is almighty. That means he's sovereign. He does as he pleases. And he is eternal. That means he has no beginning and no end. And as these four angelic beings shout out these attributes of God's great the 24 elders cannot help but constantly fall down. That's actually what they do through the whole book of Revelation. These 24 kings just keep falling down and it's not by accident. It's an act of humility. Even though each of them is a king, that's a majestic, powerful king, they bow before God the Father, take the crown off their head and place it at his feet and worship and praise him because he's the creator. And so as you read Revelation chapter four, the idea that should form in your head is this is the worship album that is playing on repeat forever in heaven. So there's always music in heaven. It's not boring elevator music. It's powerful, like spine tingling music. You're getting goosebumps for all eternity as these four angelic creatures and 24 almighty kings bow down before God the father and shout his praises. So that's the setting Now let's see what happens. The main event is in the next chapter, chapter five. So look with me at chapter five. It begins with a problem. Look at chapter five, verse one. I, that is John, saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's God the Father, a book 
written inside and on the back, sealed up with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the book and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the book or to look into it. Then I began to weep greatly because no one was found worthy to open the book or to look into it. This book, it's a scroll is the idea, and it's a scroll that details God's plan for replacing this broken world with a better world, which is kind of what we all want. That's really what you want to happen, for God to, to take away this broken world and give us a new creation, a new heavens, and a new earth that's perfected. That scroll is God's plan for doing it, but there's a problem. No one is powerful enough to open the scroll and begin God's work. No one has enough authority to take this book and open it. None of the Old Testament heroes, none of the apostles of the New Testament, not even these 24 kings or four most powerful ever angels have the authority to open the scroll. That's the problem, but there's a solution that begins in the next verse. Verse five, and one of the elders said to me, stop weeping. Behold, the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven seals. And I saw between the throne with the four living creatures and the elders a lamb standing as if slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he came and took the book out of the right hand of him who sat on the throne." So the problem is solved by the entrance of a new character, a lion who is a lamb. This is Jesus, the son of God. He has the authority, the power to open the book and begin God's program of restoring creation. And I want you to notice how John describes Jesus. He grabs two polar opposites from the animal kingdom, lion and the lamb. You can't get more different than that. Lion is a biblical symbol of strength, the power of absolute victory. Lamb is a symbol in the Bible of weakness and humility and sacrifice. And Jesus is both. He is the lion who is a lamb who has conquered. He's conquered his enemies in a most unexpected way because this lamb, John reminds us, was slain. He was killed. That's the irony of the cross. It looked like the moment of Jesus's defeat. Satan wins at the cross, right? Wrong. Because Jesus takes what looks like defeat and turns it to victory. He defeats Satan, sin and death and wins. And as a result, John tells us, this is not just a lamb. This is a ram, a ram with horns. Now that doesn't mean much to us, but to them it did. In the ancient world, a ram with horns was a common symbol throughout cultures of a powerful warrior. The bigger the horns, the more powerful the warrior. And John tells us this, this, this ram, Jesus, he has seven horns. Now you probably can't picture what a, a ram with seven horns on his head looks like. It's figurative language. Seven again in the Bible, it's the number of perfection. The idea is Jesus is the warrior, the ram who is invincible. There is no warrior in the universe who can stand up to Jesus. No one can defeat him. He wins every time. And so the humble lamb who came the first time to die is now the invincible ram, the warrior who no one can stand up against. Now, part of the reason that I want to walk you through that is it's really easy to forget that living in America during Christmas. 
Because in America during Christmas, to most people, Jesus is a two inch long plastic baby that sits in a manger scene. That's what we think of as Jesus, a keepsake ornament. Reminds me when I was a kid, I loved to build things. I still love to build things. And so one day I went into the garage and I took without permission my dad's hot glue gun to go build some stuff. But this wasn't like your household variety glue gun. This was an industrial glue gun. So it was as big as a a big old drill. It got crazy hot. It was really heavy. I didn't know that. So I took it up to my fort where no one would see me because I was going to build some stuff. And in the process of trying to build stuff, I was real little. I dropped it on my hand and I still have the scar today. And what that taught me is you do not play around with powerful things. You don't make light of things that are dangerous or you're going to get hurt. And that's what we need in America at Christmas to remember about Jesus. He is no Hallmark keepsake. Jesus is and always will be the almighty creator. He is infinitely powerful. And yes, he is dangerous. He is. He's Jesus. He is the almighty son of God. Now, the angels in heaven, they don't make that mistake that we do. They see Jesus and they don't take him lightly. (laughs) They see how powerful and dangerous he is. And so when he comes on the scene in Revelation chapter 5 and grabs the scroll, they respond in worship. That's where the chapter goes next. There's going to be three songs of worship dedicated to Jesus. Look with me, starting at verse 8, the first song. When he, that is Jesus, had taken the book, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb, each one holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you to take the book and to break its seals for you were slain and purchased for God with your blood men from every tribe and tongue and people and nation. You've made them to be a kingdom and priests to our God and they will reign upon the earth. So the sight of Jesus Jesus inspires the four powerful angelic seraphim and 24 kings to fall down and worship and proclaim that he's worthy because he's redeemed humanity. Now that first worship song inspires a second worship song with a larger audience. Look at the next verse, verse 11. Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne and the living creatures and the elders. And the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. One myriad is 10,000. That's what that word means. And so myriads, plural of myriads, plural is billions. And so what you have in heaven is you have God the Father and Jesus, the lion lamb, surrounded by four seraphim and 24 kings and then billions of angels. Really uncountable is the idea. Number bigger than you can fathom of angels who are all singing together in worship to Jesus. They list out his greatness, his attributes. And that song of worship inspires a third song of worship that's even bigger yet bigger audience yet the last song verse 13 every created thing which is in heaven and on the earth and under the earth and on the sea and all things in them I heard saying to him who sits on the throne and to the lamb be blessing and honor and glory and dominion forever and ever and the four living creatures kept saying amen and the elders fell down and worshiped now you have everyone 
everyone and everything in all of creation. So that means every human being, whether we're talking about Christians or non-Christians, every angelic being, whether righteous or fallen, this is Satan and the demons. This is all animal life. This is everything in the universe bows before God and before Jesus and sings their praise. That's how powerful Jesus is. In the end, even his enemies sing his praise. And so that's what heaven looks like. That's what's going on in heaven. That's the picture of heaven. But, but I want you to ask, what in the world does that have to do with what we're talking about today? What does this, granted, pretty awesome apocalyptic passage have to say to us when we're struggling, when we're suffering, when we're depressed, when we're lonely this Christmas. Well, here's the point of all this. When you're in the midst of suffering, when you're having a really blue Christmas, what I want you to remember from this passage is that no one at any time and at any place has ever experienced a worse Christmas than Jesus Christ. Let me repeat that for you. No one anywhere at any time has ever had a worse Christmas day than Jesus. Why? Because he left all that behind. That's where he was. That's where he will be in the future. And yet he left it behind. He left behind the worship of billions of angels at the feet of God the Father to wake up in a feeding trough. He exchanged the light and heat of the glory of God in the center of heaven to become an infant, a baby, weak, helpless. He couldn't clean himself. He couldn't care for himself. That's humility. So that first Christmas day, it wasn't a party for Jesus. It was a day of infinite humiliation and sacrifice. No one has ever had a worse Christmas day than Jesus. And so what does that mean for you? Well, I want to share with you the words of Augustine, who was reflecting on this at 300 AD, one of the greatest theologians of the church. He reflected on this humiliation of Jesus on that first Christmas day. And he concluded that man's maker was made man, that he, the ruler of the stars, might nurse at his mother's breast, that the bread might hunger, the fountain thirst, the light sleep, the way be tired on its journey, that truth might be accused of false witness, the teacher be beaten with whips, the foundation be suspended on wood, that strength might grow weak, that the healer might be wounded, that life might die. Jesus, the creator, exchanged the glory of heaven to become one of us and then even more to die for us. So what does that mean for you if you're having a depressing Christmas? Well, I want you to remember a couple things this holiday season if you're struggling. First thing I want you to remember, if you're having a blue Christmas, please understand that Jesus understands exactly what you're going through. He understands it firsthand. He, he understands what it's like to have a really bad Christmas day. He's been there. And so please, under, he's not angry with you that you're not enjoying his birthday. He didn't enjoy it either. He doesn't want you to feel guilty if you're not in the spirit this Christmas season. He wants you to turn to him for comfort because he understands exactly what you're going through. That's the beauty of Jesus. He's been through all of the suffering and pain that we will go through in this life. So he understands it firsthand. 
One of my favorite verses in the Bible is also the shortest verse. It's just two words. You find it in the Gospel of John. Jesus wept. Now, you might know the story. Uh, Jesus' really good friend Lazarus died. Now, Jesus knew it was going to happen. He knew Lazarus was going to die, but even more significant, he knew that a few minutes after this verse, Jesus was going to raise him back to life. So Jesus knew that all kinds of good was going to come from this death. He knew what was going to happen, but he sees Lazarus' sisters, Mary and Martha, weeping, and he cannot help but weep with them. Because he's one of us. He knows the, the pain of loss. He knows what grief feels like. This is not theoretical knowledge for Jesus. He knows it firsthand. And so he sees them weeping. He sees their grief. He sees them suffering and he cannot help but weep with them. When you feel lonely, Jesus knows what that's like. He knows loneliness firsthand. He's lonely with you. He grieves with you. He suffers with you. He's in pain with you. Jesus is with you in your suffering. In Hebrews chapter four, we're told we do not have a high priest who cannot sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who has been tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, let us draw near with confidence to the throne of grace so that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Jesus is our high priest. A high priest is your representative with God. He stands between you and God. And the great news is our representative understands what we need firsthand. Because our, our representative, our high priest, has already been through all the suffering, all the temptation, all the pain, all the disappointment that this life can throw at you. He knows what you need better than you do because he's already been through it all successfully. And so when you come to Jesus, you're coming to a God who sympathizes with you because he's been there. He's been through what you're going through. A few years ago, I went to my doctor. I had an ailment that was worrisome to me. I was very anxious about it. And my doctor talked to me about it. My doctor's a, an incredibly smart guy. Knows his stuff forwards and backwards. He'd done all the research. He knew everything scientifically about what I was facing. He knew all about the ways to treat it. And that, that comforted me. I felt good about that. But what made me feel best was the moment when my doctor said, yeah, I went through that about 15 years ago and I got better. That was huge for me. Because in that moment, I knew my doctor is, is someone who's been through this and so I can trust him. This is not theoretical knowledge for my doctor. He's applied it. He's used it. He's experienced it. So I can trust him because he's with me in this. That's Jesus. You can trust Jesus because he's been through it. He is with you in it. You have a high priest who sympathizes with your weaknesses because he's been through them all. That's the first good news that I want you to remember this holiday season. Jesus understands. He's not mad at you. He wants you to come to him for comfort. The second thing I want you to remember this holiday season is that Jesus loves you more than you can even imagine. I want you to think for a moment. Just, just reflect on this reality. In this life, we're going to suffer. And by and large, there's nothing that we can do about that. Now, sometimes you suffer because of sinful choices you've made. You can do something about that. You can stop sinning. But most of the suffering and pain that you face in life won't be because of something bad you did. 
It's just because you live in a broken world and inhabit a broken body. And this side of heaven, life is pain. Life is suffering. And there's no way around that fact. You cannot escape that reality. But here's what I want you to realize. Jesus could have. Jesus is the one and only human being ever who could have pushed escape on the pain and suffering of this life. As an infant baby lying in a cold feeding trough, he could have looked around and realized, this isn't what I bargained for, clapped his little infant hands and immediately appeared in the center of heaven again. At any time during his life, he could have immediately, instantly pushed eject and been back in the throne room before the father. He was not coerced to come to earth. No one forced him to come here. So why did he? Why did he come and stay in this sin-cursed planet full of pain and suffering and then take all of our sins and die in our place? Why? Because of love. He did it for you. That's the only reason. There was nothing in it for him. Wasn't fun for him. He did it out of love for you because he knew the only way to deliver you from sin and death was to become one of us and then die in our place. And so Jesus, the only human who's ever had the power to hit eject, chose to stay. He chose to suffer with us and suffer for us because he loves us. He loves us infinitely. And for some of you, this is the first time you're hearing that. For some of you here this morning, you have thought of God's love as something you have to earn. So you really want God to like you, so you came to church today. Maybe you gave a little money because you think that's good, what good people do. And maybe you're trying to be nice and not yell at your kids or your spouse this holiday because that's what good people do. And you think if you can just be good enough, then maybe God will like you. Maybe he'll love you and accept you. I have really good news for you this morning. God already loves you. God already accepts you. And there's nothing you have to do to earn it. That's not how it works. God already loves you infinitely. How do I know that? Because he became one of us for you. And then he died for you. Not because someone made him go. He didn't go there because someone forced his hand. He did it out of love for you so that he could take your place, die for your sins and rise from the dead so he could give you eternal life as a gift. Love and acceptance of God isn't something you work for. It's not something you earn. It's simply a gift God wants you to receive. So just say yes. That's all it takes. Just say yes, God, I want that. I, I want to be saved. I want your love. I want your forgiveness. I want eternal life. There's nothing I can do to earn it. I believe Jesus already earned it for me. Now, if there's anything that's keeping you from believing that Jesus died for your sins and rose from the dead so you could have eternal life, I beg you to come talk to me or talk to someone else here this morning. Please do not let another Christmas go by where you have not yet received the free gift of God's love. Now, for those of us who have received that gift, who have trusted in Jesus, the challenge for us is even though we have believed in Jesus, it is still so incredibly hard to believe he loves us. You see, the longer you live, the more time you have to see how bad you are. Growing older really stinks. Not because of what's happening with your body. That's bad enough. Growing older stinks because the older you are, the more clearly you see just how selfish you are, just how prideful, just how 
awful. And the more sin you discover in yourself, the harder it is to believe that anyone, let alone the creator, could actually like someone like you. It's hard to believe that God, the Father, the creator, would not only like us, but love us and accept us. That's so difficult. And so what I'm going to encourage you to do, I I want you to join me in doing something a little bit childish. Childish. I, I want you to join me in asking God for a gift this Christmas. And the gift that I want us to ask for, I I want us to ask God to give us the gift of faith that we would come to believe deep down inside, deep in our bones, that we are completely loved and accepted by God just as we are. I want you to pray and ask that God would give you that gift this Christmas that he would give you something extravagant, the gift of belief that his love and acceptance for you is absolute, infinite, and unconditional, and there's nothing you can ever do to lose it. Just imagine how much that would change your life if you could really believe that truth. People who really believe deep down inside in their guts that God loves them and accepts them just as they are, they are freed from shame and guilt and fear. An irony of ironies. People who believe that God loves and accepts them despite their sin actually have the power to say no to sin. That's the beauty of it. God doesn't want you to clean up your life so he loves you. He loves you so that through that love you can clean up your life. And and how powerful would it be if we really believe that God loves us and accepts us just as we are? How could we not share that with other people? Evangelism is not a burden for people who are captivated by the love of God. And so what I want to encourage you to do is become a little child again and ask for something for Christmas. Pray and ask God to give you faith, to help you to believe deep down in your gut that not only does he like you, but that he loves you and accepts you infinitely just as you are. Come to believe that and it will change everything. Heavenly Father, we thank you and we praise you for that incredible truth that you love us and accept us just as we are. We praise you that you do not make us work for your love. You don't make us earn your acceptance. You offer them for free. That is absolutely extravagant grace. We have never seen anything so amazing as that. And Father, we thank you for that. We do pray that you would help us to believe it, though. It's so hard to believe that you like us. It's so hard to believe that you could actually love and accept us just as we are. We feel so guilty and ashamed so often. We feel so anxious about all the things we're not getting done. And so we pray, God, that you would captivate us this Christmas with your love. We pray that you would give each and every person in this room the gift of faith, that we would come to believe deep down in our gut that you love us and accept us just as we are. And we pray that that belief would overflow into obedience, not an obedience designed to earn your love, but an obedience that comes because you love us. 
And I pray that that, that, that belief in your love would, would overflow into evangelism, that we would just be desperate to tell our neighbors and our family and our friends about the unconditional love of Jesus Christ. Pray, God, that you would get hold of us this Christmas, that you would make this an amazing Christmas. Now, we know that many people in here are suffering, they're in pain, they're struggling. We praise you and thank you, Jesus, that you know exactly what they're going through firsthand. We praise you and we thank you that you chose freely to leave the beauty and bliss and perfection of heaven. No one forced your hand. No one coerced you. You chose to come to earth to this broken, evil world and suffer for us. Thank you that you would love people like us. Thank you that you would give your life for us. We praise you, we thank you, we declare that you are worthy. The lion, the lamb, the ram who is a mighty warrior, you are worthy of all praise and honor and glory and it will be our privilege for all of eternity to tell you that. Thank you that we get to start telling you that now. You are worthy, Jesus. In your name we pray. Amen. God bless you guys. Have a great week and we'll see you Christmas Eve.